Thank you, Lisa, so much. I can cut that out of my sermon. Um, it's, it's out of my heart. I've, I've been serving the kids here in Korea for the past uh, eight and a half years, since the end of 2005. And uh, it's out of my experience serving them and out of the heart uh, the Lord has given me for the children that I'm going to be preaching this word tonight. And uh, the title of tonight's sermon is The Greatest Sin of a Father. The Greatest Sin of a Father. Before I, I start the sermon, I, I want to mention Ride Against Traffic. I um, want to encourage you guys to check that out. Ride Against Traffic is a, a number of guys and girls are going to be bicycling across Korea from the southern city of Pusan back to Seoul over five days, uh, September 6th to the 10th. I'm one of them, and uh, so to, today I biked for about six and a half hours in the hot sun. And uh, usually the concern for a preacher is that people are going to yawn and go to sleep. Uh, this is my first time preaching with the concern that I'm going to do that. So, uh, you know, if anything happens, my, my voice starts to slur. Susie, you can just throw something at me. I, I know I can count on you, uh, Susie. Uh, but check out Right Against Traffic. You're going to see it more and more on your Facebook. There's a number of people from different churches uh, here in Seoul that will be doing it. Uh, we're seeking support. And any money that is sponsored... Uh, for these riders will go towards Oak Tree Project, which is a scholarship fund for orphans here in Korea, and also towards Hope Be Restored, uh, which reaches out to women that have gotten out of the sex industry. So very worthy causes. Um, so if you have money saved up in the summer and you're looking for a good cause, please support Right Against Traffic. I'm going to say a word of prayer for us. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the privilege to speak here uh, at Joint Prayer Meeting. Uh, it's such an honor, and uh, I thank you for every person that is gathered here tonight, Lord. Um, took out their Saturday night to pray for this nation, uh, to worship you, and to love you. And uh, God, we just pray that you honor us with your presence. Uh, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to this place. Um, God, I just pray that you anoint my lips. Uh, God, that they will speak forth your word, Lord God, with boldness and with clarity. And uh, God, I pray grace, Lord, over every person here, that their ears will be in tune, that they will be attentive, Lord, to the word that you are speaking, and that you will release, Lord God, just a greater fire in our lives from this word to go forth and to love this nation. I uh, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one of my favorite people in the Bible is King David. Uh, King David was an amazing man of God. He was a man that God even said, this is a man after my own heart. He wrote many of the Psalms, amazing worshiper, amazing warrior, uh, the greatest king that Israel ever had uh, was King David. And so my two favorite chapters in the Bible are First and Second Samuel. I love to read about him. Uh, but if you read in Second Samuel, First Samuel is amazing. And all the stories about Daniel, they're so positive. And then suddenly there's a shift in Second Samuel. And if you read about David, um, as much as an amazing man of God, he was. He had his own faults. And one of his greatest faults was as a father. It was as a father. So I'm going to show you guys some scripture about David's parenting. And I'm going to let you guys decide what his greatest sin was. I'll say it to you just in case you don't get it. But I want you guys to follow along in the scripture and see this. Because I think it will be obvious for you. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13. I'm going to have you guys flipping around uh, for the beginning of this message through, through 2 Samuel. So go ahead and open it up, 2 Samuel 13. 
2 Samuel 13 is a very disturbing chapter. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's a disturbing chapter about David's firstborn son, Amnon, and his beautiful daughter from another wife named Tamar. So David had multiple wives. That's right away. That's one of his first problems. But that's not the greatest sin uh, for David. So his firstborn's Amnon, uh, this, this boy Amnon, or this man. Uh, and then he has this beautiful daughter named Tamar from another wife. And Amnon in this chapter, you read, he lusts very strongly for his half-sister. Uh, that's pretty gross. And in the chapter, he successfully gets with her alone and he rapes her. Uh, he defiles her of her virginity and of her honor. And he was so in sin. Uh, lust is like the complete opposite of love because lust is inherently selfish. Uh, that he shows no mercy whatsoever to her and actually sends her away in anger, yelling at her and sending her away alone and defiled. Uh, this is a grievous, grievous sin. Uh, that he has done. And so how did King David, the greatest king of Israel, respond to his firstborn son raping his daughter? Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 21. This was his response. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Uh, that's it. Uh, from, from the chapter, that's all we read. Uh, we, don't, we don't know anything else that happens. But there's a footnote. Uh, look at your Bible for the footnote. It should be in there. This is in the Latin, uh, the Septuagint, and also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says this. Uh, this is an addendum to the verse. It says, But David would not punish his son, Abnon, because he loved him, since he was his firstborn. So David seemingly does nothing to, Ab- to Amnon uh, for his sin. Tamar's brother, Absalom, who is half-brother with Amnon, he is, of course, furious about what has happened to his sister, Tamar. And so he decides to take things in his own hand. He plots revenge against Abnon. And so what Absalom does is he sets up this large party, this large festival, and he invites his father. And he seems to know ahead of time how his father is going to respond to his invitation. It's, about, it's all a part of, of his plan. So skip down to verse 24 to 27. It says, And Absalom came to the king said, Behold, Your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Absalom pressed King David, but King David would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Abnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him, until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with them. See, Absalom knew his dad wasn't going to go. So his plan was, I'm going to ask my dad. My dad's going to say no. So I'm going to use my leverage that my dad's already said no once to get my half-brother, Amnon, uh, David's blessing, to send him instead. And so he gets Amnon into a place where his men, Absalom's men, could isolate Amnon and kill him. That's exactly what he does. He kills his half-brother, and then he flees to another country with his men. Now look down to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. It says, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur, and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, because he was comforted about Amnon, since he was dead. That's a very odd verse. David does nothing to Abnon, but when Absalom kills him, David seems to feel compassion 
for Absalom. It's very bizarre, and I, I don't really know what was going on. Many people try and interpret this verse in many different ways. Uh, but in the next chapter, David's military commander, Joab, convinces Do- uh, David to bring Absalom back. And there's many different reasons for this. Uh, but he gets away so that David will show mercy to Absalom and bring him back. David allows his son back into the kingdom, but with this stipulation in verse 24. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 24 says this, And the king said, Let Absalom dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house, did not come into the king's presence. After two years of this silence, Absalom, he, he lights fire to these fields. He does all this rebellious stuff to get into the king's presence. And he manages to. But this is the only time that we read in the Bible after he murders the firstborn of Nun that he is in King David's presence. The only time, and we don't know if any words were even spoken. It just says that, that, that King David gave him a kiss on the head in this scripture. And what happens is that Absalom remains isolated in the city and either out of bitterness or out of just greed for the throne or perhaps both, he begins to coerce the people of Israel to follow him instead of King David. Whenever the people would come to King David for, for a ruling or, or for help or for counsel, Absalom would say, oh, the king's too busy for you. He can't hear you. Come to me. Oh, if only I was king, then I would take care of everyone. And he wins the hearts of Israel and he starts a civil war. This civil war is, is intense. The king has to flee for some time. King David has to flee for some time. And the war ends in Absalom's death. David's restored to the throne, but now he's lost two of his sons. Two of his sons that would, would have likely taken the throne if they had just been raised right. In 1 Kings chapter 1, let's flip over to there. We see a third son, Adonijah. Probably pronouncing it wrong, but that's what I'm going to say. Adonijah. This son also had a greed for power. It was known at this time that Solomon... David's son Solomon was supposed to become king. But Adonijah tries to ignore this, and he gets some of the key people in Israel on his side, just like Absalom had done. And in 1 Kings 1, verse 5 and 6, it reads this. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? The NIV, which reads a little bit better here, it says, His father, David, had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? David basically never spoke into his life. Adonijah's foolish actions, his arrogance, his betrayal, uh, these different things would lead to his premature death. So three sons, Abnon, Absalom, Adonijah, all premature deaths. Why? Because David committed the greatest sin of a father. David was silent with his sons. The only words we read in scripture that he had with those sons was when Absalom asked him, please come to this festival. And David said, no, I cannot. That's all we read in all these chapters throughout 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. His only interaction with these sons. The greatest sin of a father is silence. It's silence. Silence leads to neglect. 
It leads to permissiveness. It leads to death. The sin of silence. I'm going to put up some slides for you guys to read along so you're not having to flip through the scripture too much. Uh, John 10, verse 2 through 5. This is Jesus describing a good shepherd. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. What is the most important tool for shepherding sheep? It's the shepherd's voice. It's the shepherd's voice. Without the voice, the sheep will not know where to go or who to follow. Without the voice, they're lost to themselves. Without the voice of the shepherd, there's no hope for these sheep. If a shepherd remains silent, then the sheep are doomed. Even for adults, the worst punishment is silence. Even the most introverted people like myself can only handle so much silence over an extended amount of time. Think about it. What's the worst punishment in, in prisons? Solitary confinement. If you watched uh, Shawshank Redemption, you would know it. Put them in the hole. And uh, they say even that movie was very unrealistic because when he's first put in solitary confinement in that movie for about a week, he comes out of it and says, oh, it was a piece of cake. And they say no one, no one responds that way, even for just one week. Solitary confinement is when a person, usually a prisoner, is put in a confined place for an extended amount of time. And the results of it are usually very disturbing. Uh, I studied this a little bit, and uh, it's very chilling, so I'm going to keep it kind of PG and just give you a very light, simple summary of what happens to people in solitary confinement. It's going to come up on here. You can read along. Consistent patterns emerge. Extreme anxiety, anger, hallucinations, mood swings, and flatness. Loss of impulse control, uh, which means that the person snaps and goes wild at random things, which can lead to self-mutilation or other wild responses. And the absence of stimuli like sound and touch. Prisoners may also become hypersensitive to any stimuli like water dripping. Often they obsess uncontrollably, as if their minds didn't belong to them, over tiny details or personal grievances. Panic attacks are routine, as is depression and loss of memory and cognitive function, mental ability. The effects of solitary confinement aren't just contained to when the prisoner is in there, but there's actually long-term effects as well. Next slide. It says, long-term effects may persist for decades, these, are not, these not only include persistent symptoms of post-traumatic stress, such as flashbacks, chronic hypervigilance, and a pervasive sense of hopelessness, but also lasting personality changes, especially including a continuing pattern of intolerance of social interaction, leaving the individual socially impoverished and withdrawn, subtly angry and fearful when forced into social interaction, patterns dramatically different from their functioning prior to solitary confinement. So psychologists have studied prisoners before solitary confinement, found them very healthy. These aren't prisoners with mental issues. Very healthy, but after the solitary confinement, found very extremes, uh, extremes for these prisoners. And there's been so many studies that many now classify solitary confinement not as punishment, but as torture. What was God's first observation of man after he created him? 
It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Hell is hell, not so much because of fire and brimstone. Hell is hell because it is a place of complete absence of God. You cannot hear God's voice in hell. You cannot feel his presence. There is absolute silence from the God of the universe. That's what true hell is. To demonstrate the damaging power of silence, I'm going to show you guys a kind of controversial experiment by a Japanese guy named Masuro Emoto. I think some of you guys have probably heard about him before. He's done a lot of experiments on the power of words on water and the power of words on rice. So this is just a very brief clip, uh, but I want you guys to watch this and see the damaging power of silence. Go ahead and put that one up. Dr. Emoto has conducted another interesting experiment. He placed rice into three glass beakers and covered it with water. And then every day for a month, he said, thank you to one beaker. You're an idiot to the second. And the third one, he completely ignored. After one month, the rice that had been thanked began to ferment, giving off a strong, pleasant aroma. The rice in the second beaker turned black. And the rice that was ignored began to rot. Dr. Emoto thinks that this experiment provides an important lesson especially with regard to how we treat children. We should take care of them, give them attention, and converse with them. Indifference does the greatest harm. I love that music. Wow. This guy's not a Christian, as far as I know. Uh, not at all. And a lot of... Scientists, a lot of people, um, they refute his work. They, they say it's silly, um, that there's all these things wrong. But the interesting thing is, is if you study, if you go through YouTube, if, if you research a lot of people, they've replicated this study. And for those that believe this study, it happens when they do it, when they make the, put, put the rice or, or, or whatever into a jar and they'll label it with love or with hate or, or different things. It, it actually happens for them. They replicate this over and over. But then for the skeptics, when they replicate it, it doesn't work. And they're like, look, see, it, it doesn't work. This is, this is just, you know, it's all false. And, you know, you, you can say what you want about it, but I do know that the power of words has an effect on life. And there have been studies proven that for plants, if you play classical music, a plant will flourish. But if you play heavy metal, the plant will literally turn from the source of the music and wilt and die. I'm not joking. You guys can look that up. Words have power. So why do the people that believe it, when they replicate it, it works? But the people that don't believe it, when they replicate it, and they say the same exact words, like fool and thank you and, and whatever, and it doesn't work, why is it that way? 
Well, I want to tell you, it's not just a sin of silence. It's also a sin of the faith behind the words. There's another bad father in the Bible. His name is Eli. He was high priest of Israel. And you can read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli had sons that, that were um, at priests in Israel. And these sons, they would desecrate the offering given to God over and over. Uh, the, the right offering that was meant to go to God, they would eat for themselves. They would sleep with the women that were supposed to serve in the most holy place in that area. Uh, these men were inherently wicked. And what you read in 1 Samuel 2 is Eli comes to them and he rebukes them. He basically is like, why are you guys doing this? You shouldn't do this at all. Okay? But the problem is, is that Eli's voice comes across like a substitute teacher's voice. There's no authority whatsoever. He didn't really mean it. Because if you read a few verses after, a man of God is sent by the Lord to Eli to rebuke him. And this man of God rebukes him and says, you have not spoken to your sons. You have allowed this to happen. And you read just before, wait, 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 he, he did talk to them. But what you see is that Eli, his words had no weight. They had no faith. He didn't really care. He allowed it. You see, if, if I were to see someone that's sick, oh, I'm supposed to pray healing for them, but I have no faith for healing. I could pray healing over them. Maybe out of God's divine grace it would happen, but likely there's no weight to my prayer. This is what Lisa spoke before we prayed tonight. She challenged you guys, don't just give empty language when you pray tonight, but get in tune with these topics I'm about to lead. Because there's power in faith. Faith is conviction. Faith, faith is a connection with God's heart. When that's not there, you're just like all those skeptics that lift up their jars and say, look, this is false. But for those that really believe, I, my words have power and they speak it with power, it happens. Okay, so you got to understand that it's not just silence that can kill. It's also empty words. And this is why many of these kids in these international schools who have very wealthy families, and they have a father and a mother, they're still some of the most rebellious kids. Because the words of their parents, while they hear words from their parents, they're empty words. What do you want? Here, have another toy. Here, have, an, have another thing. I, I love you. But there's no depth to it. And the kids know it. Kids know true love. We see this at our soccer camp all the time. These kids come. They've been to many camps. They've had many different volunteers. But when our volunteers speak love into these kids, into these orphans, these kids open up right away. Some of the volunteers spoke to me after this camp about how surprised they were that some of these kids opened up just so quickly. And sharing and, and everything. At the end of the camp, uh, I heard from one volunteer that one boy was, was fighting back tears as he had to leave. Another boy, he got a, a picture of his team and he was holding on to it. And he didn't want me to, to take it from him. To, to, I was like, hey, I'll, I'll take it and I'll hold it in the car for you. And he said, no. And he held on to it. They know love. Even if it's just for three days. Kids know it. And they know when it's not love. Because these kids go on many other camps and I see them not open up at all. I see them not care at all. I see them even act rebellious because they know I'm in a place where I'm not loved. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. Kids catch it. One of the greatest examples I want to share with you guys is how damaging isolation can be. If, if you believe that oh, silence is bad, but is it really that bad? It's prostitutes. Many ministries like Hope Be Restored have been shocked to find that these prostitutes that they rescue out of the industry, 
There's many different counseling places, many different ministries here in Korea that reach out to prostitutes in America as well. They found that many of the prostitutes, even though they've been rescued from violence and rape and, and so much pain, they soon go back. They go back to the pimps. They go back to the men that enslaved them. Why? Because that was the one place they had emotional connection. Even though the connection was evil, even though it was bad, it was a connection nonetheless. And so they returned to it. And I've seen this uh, in my kids as well. This yearning for connection time and time again. I talked about how usually the most rebellious kids are, are the kids that are neglected at home. It's the same for the kids in this orphanage. The kids that were the most neglected, when they come to the home, they're constantly just acting wild and rebellious and difficult because they want attention. Even if that attention is bad. They just want attention. Even if it's someone yelling at them. And so they learn, in order for me to get the quickest attention, I got to be really bad. Because when the dorm mom walks into the room and she sees nine little boys all obediently studying and, and being good little kids, and then she sees one boy tearing up his book and, and acting crazy, she's not going to ignore that boy and praise each one of them. Instead, she's going to yell at that boy, that rebellious boy, for what he's doing. So he gets the attention, not the obedient kids. And even though that attention is bad, it's at least attention. The, one of the toughest kids at my children's home, uh, his name is Hee-sung, kindergarten boy. And uh, this boy can be very, very difficult. And um, he speaks in Panmar to everybody, which is you know, very rude. Panmar is like informal, you know, talks to the dorm moms, talks to, to the staff. And he does it knowing that you're supposed to speak in a formal language, but it's just being rebellious, being arrogant, uh, constantly wanting his way. When I usually go to the home, he would just ignore me unless he wanted to rile me up. And, you know, he would, he would do, like, bad behavior to try, try and get my attention, but unhealthy attention. And uh, he would crave it. And I'll be honest, for kids like Hee-sung, my personal desire is just to ignore them. I'm just being honest, okay? Because it's like, uh, do I really want to deal with this today? I'm going to focus on these boys over here, you know? And every time I, I, I do that or, or I have a desire to do that, there's that conviction of the Holy Spirit within. And it says, he sung needs your love. He needs your love. And uh, these past few months, uh, he sung... He's been outside a lot more. Um, he's, he's getting a little older, so he plays with the kids. And after dinner every day, uh, we'll go out and, and we'll do these different games with the tennis ball. And we'll throw it around. And what Hee-sung will do is he'll try and break up the game and grab the ball and run away with it laughing. <laughs> you know, and, and all the kids get really upset. And I'm like, Hee-sung, you know. Like, oh, this kid. And I realized what, what God was saying. Just give him attention give him love and so i resolved in my heart it's actually pretty recent these past few weeks i, I went through some time of just being frustrated with him <laughs> conviction okay i'm not going to let this kid affect my feelings and i'm not going to ignore this kid because that's the worst thing that i can do to him i'm going to give him love and so every time i see he sung now i make sure to say oh he sung you know oh he sung chua. Oh, Moshita, you know, like just simple, like, oh, you're so handsome. You're, you're a great kid. I love you. You know, uh, I speak things like that over him. 
And when he responds in Palmar, I, I correct him. And, you know, but then I'm quick to affirm him again. And I just, I've kept at it. I've just kept at it. <laughs> Keep going with this kid. I'm being honest here. And it was just this past week we got the breakthrough. Where now when I go to the home, he, sung, he sees me, his face lights up, and he runs to me. And he says, Annyeonghaseyo. He speaks formal, okay? He's happy to see me. Orphanage ministry. Uh, you got to keep loving them. And as you keep loving them and loving them soon, that shine starts to come back. starts to reflect. Orphans act like orphans not because of some genetic disorder. Uh, orphans act like orphans not because they're inherently bad. Orphans act like orphans because of the neglect they've experienced. For a lot of the more troubled kids, uh, like I'm talking about, like he sung, it wasn't that their parents, before they were brought to the children's home, spoke evil over them. It's that their parents didn't say any words at all. You see, for the kids that were spoken, the, their parents said, oh, you're ugly, or you're stupid, or, or something else about them. That's just one thing about them. And so they take it, and like that, that, that rice that you know, said, you're a fool, it, it rots. But it's not horrible. But for the kids that get no voice whatsoever, like he sung, who came to the home, doesn't even know why his parents put him there. He's left to his own devices. Like someone in solitary confinement, just trying to figure it out. Why did my parents leave me? What's wrong with me? Am I stupid? Am I ugly? Am I a failure? Am I good for nothing? Am I this? And you see, it's not just one identity they take on, but they stay, start to take on each and every one of them. That's what silence does. Silence kills these kids. It eats away at them just like the prisoners in solitary confinement. Just like sheep without a shepherd, without the voice, the children are left to themselves. Without the voice, they are doomed. Numbers chapter 30, I've shared this a lot with Jerusalem ministry volunteers. This is one of the clearest chapters on the power of words of a father and words of a husband. We're just going to read the first five verses, but if you have any questions about spiritual covering, this is the chapter to study. Numbers 30, verses 1 through 5. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself to a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself, and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand. And every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Basically, if a father hears that his young daughter has made some sort of vow, made some sort of words, some sort of pledge that is wrong, that is evil, that is was foolish, God gives him the authority. If you speak up, I will nullify that, and I will show grace to that young daughter. But if you choose to be silent, 
She'll pay for her sins. She'll have to live under that word. You see the power of words. For the fathers that speak, their daughters are safe. And if you read on that into that chapter, it also talks about husbands with their wives. And the power of words, the power of authority. If they speak, they're safe. But if they're silence, the children are left to their own devices. Satan can have his way with them. I've shared these statistics a number of times with my Jerusalem ministry volunteers, uh, but I want to share these with you tonight. These are statistics of those raised in a fatherless home, uh, never having a father's voice in their lives. These are the odds uh, that are against them. Sorry that the font is a little small. It says 90% of runaways and homeless kids are from fatherless homes. So 90% of all homeless and runaways are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of kids with behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, 9 times the average. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, 5 times the average. 85% of youth in prisons come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. Those are just some. There's a lot more statistics uh, that are, are really tough for kids raised without a father. Sheep without a shepherd's voice are doomed. Mothers can step in, and by God's grace, they can succeed. But fathers with a sincere voice have great power. Fathers with a sincere voice have great power. A few years ago, I preached a message at this church called Generational Blessing. And the power that Christians have in having children, the generational blessings that are given into them. And a big part of the generational blessing are the words of the father. New Philadelphia Church, we call that the inheritance. But the words of a father can bless a child tremendously. Think about this. If, If I have a child, then I can speak into him all the lessons that I've learned. Give him all advice, speak identity, deep words into his heart. He's going to flourish. But if I choose to be silent, he's going to go through all the same sin and temptations that I went through, and perhaps even worse, end up even worse. This is generational blessing, voice, words, speaking into them. This is generational curse, silence, left to his own devices, left to learn on his own. It was out of this heart that I preached a message at New Philadelphia Church earlier this year called Sex, Soul Ties, and Pornography. Because I've realized that in society today, there are so few fathers and mothers that are sharing about sexual purity with their children. So few. And because of their silence, the youth today are learning about sex from school, but so much more from the media. And the media teaches them to be free with themselves. Do what you want. Enjoy yourself. And so many Christians today say, oh, we're living in dark times. This generation today is one of the most perverse generations that have ever lived. But I don't blame the children. I don't blame this young generation for what they do. Just like I don't blame the orphan for for their issues, for their rebellion, for their struggles. Instead, I blame the parents. I blame those that could have been a voice but chose to be silent because they were insecure, because they were fearful. Or like David with Adonijah, just didn't want to interfere, just wanted to 
Let him be. Let him just do whatever he wants. That's the greater sin. Not the sin of the son, but the sin of the father. Romans 10, verse 13 and 14 reads, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is a powerful chapter about salvation. Paul lays out, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But then Paul takes a pause here. And he says, wait, it's not their fault that they haven't been saved yet. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone choosing to be a voice in their lives? Guys, you are that someone. And we gather a joint prayer meeting every month. I love this prayer meeting because we pray for Korea. We pray sincerely for this nation. We worship our God. We pray for justice. And that's powerful. But what we got to understand is that when you pray for a nation, God will give you that nation. Psalm 2 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And you see when... The nation is given to you as an inheritance. You're then called to father that nation. And if you're called to father that nation, you're called to be a voice to that nation. To speak identity. To speak truth and hope. To rebuke. To build up. To teach and to train. And if right now we're silent with our students, with our coworkers, with our family, with those around us, if we choose to be like King David with his first three sons and just, ah, I don't want to be uncomfortable, so I'm going to just skip that conversation. Oh, man, I, you know, I caught one of my kids looking at porn. I'm just going to pray and hope that someone else will speak to him about this. If we choose to do this, we are committing the greatest sin that a father could ever do. Silence. God's not called us to silence. God's called us to be a voice. We can't expect anything of this nation of Korea if we don't speak into it. You can complain all you want about this nation, about, oh, different stuff, and oh, look at all this evil. But if you're not speaking into this nation, you're just as guilty as those that are perpetrating Just like the orphans, the guilt was more on those that could have been a voice, but chose not to. And so we pray and we speak into it, but it goes far more beyond joint prayer meeting. It goes into our daily lives. It goes into our relationships, whether at church or or at work or at home or wherever we are. That God, I will be your voice. I will be your hands and your feet. I will speak up. On behalf of the needy, I will bind up the brokenhearted. I will bring healing to those that are wounded. I will feed the hungry. I will be a voice to them that they will know that they are loved. That they're not lost to themselves. This is God's call for us. And um, I'm going to invite the praise team up. I'm not done yet. But 
I want to tell you guys that one of the greatest lies the, the devil tries to speak is, I'm not ready yet. I can't be a father. I, my father wasn't a good father to me. I didn't even have a father. So I can't do it. But I'll tell you guys, I've seen orphans at my orphanage, junior hires, high schoolers, be a voice to the younger kids. If orphans can be a voice, children can be a voice to younger children, you can be a voice as well. And I want to tell you guys that David, I highlighted his failures. But with one son, David succeeded. See, if you read 1 Kings chapter 1, David's old and he's laying in bed. He's just bedridden. And he's woken to hear that his son Adonijah is power hungry and is trying to take the throne from his son Solomon. And it's in that moment that David remembers God's call for Solomon. David remembers God's plan for the temple and for what's supposed to happen during Solomon's reign. And I want to I make this clear. David, uh, many people believe that David came from a broken home. We read about his father, Jesse. Uh, but if you read that when Samuel came, he said, line up all your sons. Jesse chose to neglect David and leave him with the sheep. In Psalm 51, David says, surely I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. Many people believe that David, many scholars who study the Bible, believe that David wasn't born of Jesse's wife, but was born of an affair. And children like that are, are usually neglected in the family. And so many people believe this is why David failed so much as a father. See, he never had a father for himself. But even David in the Old Testament, before everyone received the Holy Spirit, he still succeeded in the end. Because he's laying in that bed and he hears what's happening. And he remembers, no, Solomon's supposed to be king. And we read that he stands up in his bed. He wakes up, gets up, and he calls Solomon in, and he anoints him as king. But that wasn't the end of David's life. Many people thought that he was about to die. But if you read through 1 Chronicles, the last about eight chapters of that Bible, it starts, chapter 23, David anoints Solomon as king in his bed, expected to die. And yet then he begins to speak to Solomon, to teach him of what to do. And there are full chapters of him speaking to Solomon's life. Be strong and courageous. God is with you. God has given you this plan. You can do this. And David is a father to Solomon. And we read that Israel prospers more than ever through the reign of King Solomon. David was Old Testament. David didn't even have what we have, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood that covers us. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. There is no excuse of our past to hold us back from being a voice for the Lord. He has called us. He has anointed us. He's shown us the way. So I want to ask you, church, I want you to stand up right now. If you're here, I believe that you're mature in your faith. I think all of us have had our he songs. We've had those in our lives that we've just kind of wanted to go away or just ignore. Sometimes it's even just in the subway when your heart suddenly goes out to the homeless man or, or, or to someone around you and you just choose 
not right now. I'm not going to speak into that person. I'm just, I'm just going to, I don't want to interfere with that person. I don't want to bother with that person. I'm just going to go on. We've had these moments. Right now, I want us to pray and I want us to ask for God's grace, his repentance for not being a voice, for committing the sin that I've highlighted in this sermon. And for those of you that have, have grown up without a father or, or have grown up in a broken home or, or just never received the words that you needed, I want you to renounce the lies that God can't use you. God could use David, his broken father who lost three of his sons. God can use you. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within you. And so I want you to renounce the lies that you can't be a father, that you can't be a good father, that maybe you can be somewhat of a father, but but not that great. That's a lie. You can do all things. You're a new creation in Christ. I want you to renounce these lies. So church, it's either repenting of not being the voice or it's renouncing the lies that you can't be the voice. Let's pray right now. Let's pray, church.